Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Lucius Carey has been involved in UK venture capital for over 40 years and has a wealth of experience investing right at the start of science-based startups. We talk about how he started as an entrepreneur and how the challenges of raising money led him to try to help others to do the same. We also discuss how he invests now and the challenge of investing in new and science companies that often don't even have a product yet. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we are joined by Lucius Carey, who is founder and managing director at Oxford Technology. Welcome to the podcast, Lucius. Good morning. So as you would like to start by getting to know a bit more about you, I have in front of me a book from 2001 called Winning Angels, which mentions you and obviously talks about an extensive history, even going back that far. So usually I say, let's be really brief, but I think you have a very interesting sort of background and history and oversight of the industry. So how did you become an EIS fund manager? Okay. Well, I think it, it'd be good to go right back to the beginning because I, I got into all this through experiencing at first hand the difficulty of raising capital. So um, my history is that I did after school, I did an engineering apprenticeship. And uh, then I went to Oxford and I read engineering. Um, then I went to Harvard Business School. And when I came back from Harvard Business School, I had a, a one job, which was a, a, a sort of disastrous job, really. It lasted six months. And then I thought, well, I'd better, if I, I can't get a job for somebody else, I'd better start my own business. And I didn't have any money at the time. I'd borrowed money to pay for my education. And I really wanted to start an engineering business, but I didn't think I'd be able to raise enough money to start an engineering business because you need quite a lot of capital for that. Um, and in particular, so you have to buy machines and then you have to make something and then you have to sell it and then you have to wait to be paid. And so I didn't think I'd be able to raise enough money to do that. So I conceived the slightly unlikely idea of starting an American hamburger restaurant. And the big uh, joy of open, of a restaurant is that as soon as you open your doors, you get paid in cash and you don't have to pay the butcher for three months or you know, six weeks, whatever you can get away with. So they have the feature of being cash flow positive from day one. Nevertheless, you do need some money. And I wrote a business plan and I reckoned I needed £27,000 to start. So at that point, this was in the early 1970s. I was the archetypal young entrepreneur. I had a business plan in one hand needing £27,000, and I had an overdraft at the time of £3,000, which is the money I'd borrowed to pay for my education. So my problem then was how to raise the money to start the business. And so the first thing I did was to go and see my bank, and they very decently offered to increase my overdraft from 3000 to 4000 so that I had £1,000 to contribute to this venture, um, which was, and then there were two venture capital companies at the time, ICFC, now called 3i, and a, a thing called the Small Business Capital Fund. And there were only two, two of those companies. So I went to see both of them, and they both turned me down after 20-minute meetings on the grounds that I was too young and I never run a business, blah, blah. So I then put an advertisement in the Financial Times. And the advertisement said, uh, entrepreneur seeks £26,000 to start um, business. And that was the £27,000 less the £1,000 that the bank was going to lend me. Um, estimated value after 66 months, £237,500. Please write box number. And the, the idea of putting that very precise number was to convey the idea that there was a business plan. So I had, um, it was quite expensive that ad too, it was another thing. And um, anyway, I had 16 replies to that advertisement, six from people who are trying to sell me more advertising, but 10 from people who today would be called business angels, but the term didn't then exist. 
And so I sent those 10 people a copy of the business plan. And then the first one of them rang me up and said, oh, this is quite interesting. Let's have lunch in a pub. So I went to have lunch in a pub with him and there was somebody else there who wasn't interested. And it was a very unsatisfactory meeting. We, we first of all we we've sort of fetched out some drinks and we then we talked a bit about the cricket it was the summer and then we talked a bit about the business and then we fetched our food and it just it didn't feel at all right and in the afternoon at about four o'clock i rang him up and i said look that went really badly and i'm sure you're not going to invest in me and he said you're quite right he said i'm just writing you a letter and i said but could i come and see you again and do it properly and he said, all right, come to breakfast. So the, the next day I went to his house in, in London for, for breakfast. And we talked about the business for three hours. And at the end of that meeting, he offered to invest 5,000 pounds in the business on the terms I was suggesting. And the terms I was suggesting were that I would put in the 1,000 pounds that the bank was lending me for shares and the investors would put in 999 pounds for shares. And then the investors would make a loan to the business secured against the assets of the business, but not guaranteed by me for 25,000 pounds. And the investors would be, so the effect of that structure was that if the business failed, I would lose 1,000 pounds and the investors would lose 26,000 pounds. If the business went well, then the first profits would get used to repay the investors nearly all the money they'd invested. And after that, we'd share the profits 50-50. So that seemed like a fair deal to me, and it did to that investor since he offered to invest on those terms. And for anybody who's ever tried to raise money for a business, that is the seminal moment when you've got somebody who's offering to invest in the business on agreed terms, not because they're your father or your friend or something, but purely because they think it's a good commercial proposition, suddenly everything gets real. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So once I got that first investor, I was able to write to the others and say, you know, I've got, I've now got, we're on the way, we've got some of the money. And quite quickly, I was oversubscribed. So I had more people wanting to invest than I had room for. So I took the four largest investments, which was two for 8,000 and two for 5,000. And it was all contingent on finding a site. And then I found a site in Bristol. And I went, I went, didn't know anybody in Bristol. And I, I went down there and um, you know got a bed sit and then worked in this restaurant and then converted it to an American hamburger restaurant. It's an upmarket American hamburger restaurant. This was before McDonald's had started or anything, quite early days. And I did everything myself in the restaurant. So I cooked the food, waited at table, you know, paid the wages, did absolutely everything. And very hard work, just seven days a week, 14 hours a day. But after a bit, we had enough money in the bank to open a second. And then after a bit, uh, so after five years, there were three restaurants in this chain. And each restaurant by this time had a manager. Um, so I, I was, I had time on my hands and a, a profitable um, business. And then um, looking back at the difficulty I had had raising capital, it seemed to me that the whole method of raising capital in the UK was very bad. You know, it just it was all dependent on that one person who'd read my tiny little ad in the Financial Times, which was also quite expensive. And you know, if he'd been out of the country or hadn't read his newspaper thoroughly that day, you know, there might have been one less business and 50 less people employed. So then I thought, well, I, I'll, I started a, a second business called Venture Capital Report, which sought to make it easier for other entrepreneurs to raise capital. So Venture Capital Report was a magazine and it was published. I ran it from the office above one of the restaurants to start with. And uh, it was a, a magazine that had um, articles in it, uh, four or five page articles about entrepreneurs and the businesses for which they were seeking capital. So rather than my tiny little ad, there was a you know five pages with a um, the description of the product uh, and the market 
and analysis of the, of the competition, and then a CV of the founder with uh, photographs, and then a cash flow projection, and a suggested equity structure, and a name and address. And it was sold on subscription to investors. And it was a, it was a very difficult thing to start because it was a huge chicken and egg problem. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting with the idea. I can understand. You know, how was I going to find people to write about? And in the absence of something to show, how was I going to find investors to you know to feature it? So um, I but I managed to to find we advertised I advertised it every week in the Financial Times saying it was coming, and uh, we managed to put together the first issue and 30 people bought the first issue and then one of those businesses raised capital so it showed that the that it could work in theory and then the financial times wrote it up and the the numbers of subscribers began to grow and then i had a a a stroke of luck too because in the first issue was in december 1978 and then in april 1979 mrs thatcher was uh, elected and uh, and she was on the same tack that i was on she was trying to make england a more enterprising place where people could start businesses more easily and so the the cabinet office subscribed to venture capital report and mrs thatcher used to invite me to to Downing Street to talk to her chancellors. So she, she'd sit me down and she'd say, now you listen to this man, meaning me. And <laughs> I, gave, I, gave the, I gave advice into, you know, the various government schemes that there were to try to make things better, you know, the business expansion scheme and the loan guarantee scheme and all the various schemes that there were. Anyway, and so Venture Capital Report eventually it ran for 25 years and we at its peak we had 975 subscribers so it enabled entrepreneurs to get their plans in some detail on the desks of quite a large number of potential investors not just the tiny you know the 10 business angels who answered my tiny little so I suppose in some sense it was almost like a an early marketplace, as we would call it. Was, it. Yes, it was. It was exactly. It was. It was the precursor of the, you know, the business angel networks which mm-hmm. exist today and which are now all done online, which is mm-hmm. obviously much better. Yeah. But at the time there was no internet and it wasn't. You know, it didn't exist. So, then by 1983, though, so after I after running venture capital report for five years it became clear that the people who couldn't raise money were the scientists. And so whenever we wrote up, uh, quotes, unquote, normal businesses, so if we wrote up fashion designers or, you know, hotel developments or um, squash court complexes or something, or nursing homes, you know, they would get interest and, and in some cases raise their money. But when we wrote up a real science idea, it never got any inquiries even, let alone investment. And thinking about it, you know, the reason's very clear that, you know, most people don't understand science and very sensibly, you know, people don't like to invest in what they don't understand. So, you know, nothing was happening. And that's my uh, interest. I, you know, I read engineering and, um, and I'm interested in science. And so it was particularly frustrating to me that, that, that we were just, as a nation, we were just wasting all this talent and not not starting these businesses. And at the time, did you have an inkling about how important technology was going to be? Or is it just a case of here's this area that I see that I like? Yeah, that, it was, I think there was that. I mean, it was a, a, a bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, as a nation, we, you know, we have more Nobel Prizes per capita than any other nation. Actually, I think that's no longer true, but it used to be the case. I mean, we are very inventive and very creative. And our science is, you know, Oxford is regularly voted the, I don't know how they do it, but it, it, it comes in, it's the best university in the world. And it's you know, in Cambridge also, and uh, right, right up there. But, you know, there are very few great science businesses in the UK. You know, and it's the, the you know, the way we, we manage science is is just not, hasn't been good over the years. That was frustrating. So then, then I was one day 
I was in London in the offices of a venture capital company and I was bleating on to them. I was saying, you know, it's no wonder this country's going to the dogs. You know, you venture capitalists, you put your money into asset-backed ventures and, you know, already profitable businesses. But whenever anybody comes up with a real idea, you will run a mile. And they said, oh, Lucius, they said, I tell you what, they said, if we give you, uh, you know, uh, 250,000 pounds, would you like to do 10 of these things yourself, 25,000 pounds each, and shut up. So I said, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're on. <laughs> so, so that is the beginning. That was the beginning of what I've done ever since, as it's happened. So the first uh, fund in the end was even less. It was 125,000 pounds. And anyway, so I, I invested it in five things, 5,000 pounds each in science startups. And luckily for me, the first one was a was a huge success. Well, after a few years, it bought out the, the shareholders, of the, the original venture capital company for £500,000. So they made a return of £500,000 and the whole fund was £125,000. And um, and then the, the founder of that business, the first one, he, I liked him and he liked me. And so he asked me to stay on. And my deal with the, with the venture capital company was that I got 10% of whatever I acquired for them. So I owned 2.5% of the shares and they owned, we had a 25% share of this startup business. And so I owned 25 and they owned 22.5%. Their 225 was then bought out for £500,000 and I kept my shares. So the business was then owned 97% by the founder and 3% by me. And the, the business used to pay a, a dividend of a million pounds every 18 months or so. So the founder used to ring me up and he'd say, oh, Lisa, we've got, I bought all the stock for a year ahead, you know, and the bank balance has now gone over a million and a half. So shall I just pay a dividend of a million pounds? So I'd say that fine. So he used to pay <laughs> 970,000 pounds to himself and 30,000 to me. And uh, he used to use his 970,000 pounds to invest in my businesses. So he became my biggest investor. So it was a very satisfactory thing. And that success then enabled me to raise a second fund and then a third and a fourth and a fifth and sixth. And I'm currently managing the seventh fund, which is an SCIS and EIS fund. And um, I suppose that the, the point of this introduction is that I've been on all sides of the fence. So to begin with, I've been, I was raising money myself as an entrepreneur and you know, discovering just how difficult it is to raise money when you've got nothing to contribute, just an idea and you're young and you've got no track record and it's, it is quite hard. So what happened to the restaurants in the end? Oh, the restaurants were, um, were sold. In fact, the, the founders, when I started Venture Capital Report, <laughs> the one thing about the original investment, that the, the investor said that we're not really backing this restaurant, um, we're backing you. So you must undertake to do everything you do in future through this company that uh, we're investing in. So I said, fair enough. So when when I started Venture Capital Report, I didn't own any shares in it. My, the, the shares were owned by the restaurant company. And to begin with, I had various, some other people I'd brought in to help, but they had to do work in exchange for their shares. And it was it was a lot of work with no pay. So one of them was a merchant banker, and he used to have to do one article a month for his shares. And it used to take him two days to do an article for which he got paid £25. So getting paid £25 for two days' work for a merchant banker was was not good. So after a bit, he stopped doing it. Even in 1978. I, I said, look, that's fine, you know, but either you have to do the work or, you know, contribute £2,000 a month to somebody else to do the work that you're meant to be doing yourself, or you must sell your, or you, I, you know, I'm going to take over your shares. So that's what happened. So I ended up, uh, or the, the restaurant company to begin, ended up owning all the shares. Um, but and Venture Capital Report lost money. Uh, it, was, it, it was a real struggle financially, because we were dealing with entrepreneurs who got no money, so they couldn't pay. And then we didn't have enough subscribers to justify it. So it was a sort of labor of love. And then my investors formed up to me and they said, you know, look, why why, why we just, you know, stop doing this venture capital report stuff, we just open more restaurants. 
the restaurants are profitable and, you know, we've got a formula which works and all we have to do is now roll it out and we can make a big chain. And I said, yes, but I don't want to spend my life running a big chain of restaurants. It's not what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, that's the point of my controlling the business. And uh, But I said, but if you're not happy, we'll value everything and I'll buy you out. And uh, I think I think by that time their loan had already been repaid, uh, and they'd also had directors' fees, and so and that's what we did. So in the end, um, I bought out the investors. So I ended up owning a hundred percent of the restaurant company, which then owned a hundred percent of Venture Capital Report. So then I just split them into two separate companies, and then sold the the, the restaurants. They were actually sold individually, and not as a chain, as it, as it happens. I guess the, the point is I've been on all sides of the fence. So first of all, you know, raising money myself and finding out just how difficult it is. Then through Venture Capital Report being an intermediary and, you know, helping other people raise money. And over the course of its life, probably four or 500 businesses raise money through Venture Capital Report. And then since 1983, uh, being an investor myself, investing in these um, startups science businesses. On the investment side, we we have, um, we're now a little team uh, of people um, that used to be, when I started, it was, it was just me and then, and then there were two people. All the investments are within an hour's drive is the idea. So Yes, I saw that, which I thought as an interesting idea. How did the idea of, sort of doing things within an hour's drive come into well, for very common sense reasons, is is that when you're, if you invest in a science business, the you know it's typically as a professor in a lab with an idea. You know, he may be a Nobel laureate kind of scientist, but he's never seen a VAT return before, or you know, negotiated a deal with an American distributor, or you know, all the hundreds of other things you have to do when you're starting a, a business. And so the the idea was that. We would be near so that we could easily have a face-to-face -face meeting if a problem arose. So, and what and we've, we we do that now. We we meet our investees regularly, and and we informally. So we don't like to have big blockbuster board meetings for which people prepare stuff. We what we like is for the entrepreneur to ring up and say, "Oh, Lucius, you know, I've just had this letter. You know." Uh, what do you think I, I should do about this? And then I said, well, I'll come see you. So we we go to the office and then hopefully then, you know, can solve the problem, whatever it is, you know, before it becomes a, a big issue. So it's probably worth framing about the sort of businesses that you're investing in with office technology, because you're investing in really early stage businesses. Yes. It's kind yes. of, uh, you mentioned about the scientists. So is it kind of like the scientist has... I've made this discovery and I've got an idea for business. And is, is it that sort of level or? Yes, uh, just so. I mean, we get, we get about uh, about a thousand approaches a year. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time. And of those, about a hundred are possible because they are science businesses within an hour's drive or, or near enough to, to meet. And um, And then we investigate about 20 of those in some detail and we make about five investments a year is how it uh, works out and we and we use now the SEIS scheme which is just perfect you know, for investing in a science business it's absolutely ideal the SEIS scheme because you get 50% of your investment back at the start and you know, what other investment gives you a guaranteed cash return of 50% in year one? And it's an amazingly good scheme. And then if the business, and you also get, if you've got capital gains tax to pay, that capital gains is cancelled, not just deferred. And uh, and then if the business fails, you get more cash back. In fact, when the scheme was first announced, the SEIS scheme, you actually made a profit if the business failed. If you invested £100,000, you ended up with £100,500 if the business failed. I could not believe it when I... when I it, Sounds a little too generous. I know. I couldn't... I, I, and I rang the people in the Treasury I, whom I know, and I said, look, is this really true? I, 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 you know, 
can I come and see you? And they said, sure. So I, I went to see them and I you know, wrote it down painstakingly. And they said, okay, so I invest £100,000, I get £50,000 back and then I get £22,500 back. And then if the business fails, yes, 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 they said. And I said, you know, and they said, well, the thing is that the Chancellor, who was George Osborne at the time, has decided that the UK economy is in a mess. And this was after the financial you know, fallout of 2009, and this was 2012 by this time. And, you know, and what we need, what the nation needs is more startups. And investors just don't do startups because they're too risky. And so this scheme is going to change the culture. And it has subsequently been changed. So it's no longer quite so generous. You don't actually make a profit now if the business fails, but you 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 lose about 12% of your total investment if the business fails. And if it goes well, all the gains are tax-free. So it is a very, very perfect for what we do backing these startups. And the math says that what you need to do is 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 back high risk, high reward businesses. And if 10 businesses fail, if you make 10 businesses and nine of them fail, and one of them multiplies itself by even three or four times, you come out ahead because the tax the tax back, the tax breaks on the losses are so great. And what doesn't work is if you back 10 businesses which are safe and they each make a 10% return and none of them go bust, you don't, you don't do so well. So it actually favours backing high-risk businesses. So it's absolutely perfect for what we do. So touching on one of the things you mentioned there about lots of failures, despite the financial sort of underpinning that you have, accepting failure isn't necessarily the easiest thing for an investor. Yes. And, and you, 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 you know, given the sort of things you're investing, you're probably experiencing more than most. How do you deal with accepting that? Well, I do not mind failure for, let's say, for honest reasons. So I do, I, I mean, I have probably made, uh, you know, more bad investments than anybody else in England. I've now done more than 150 of these startups since 1983. And uh, I should think at least, you know, 40 of them have failed um, in the early days, um, especially. But overall, you know, the, the economics of it has worked quite well. Because when a business fails, you lose your money once. But when it goes well, you can multiply your money tenfold, twentyfold. The best I've ever had is a hundredfold. In our current uh, fund, which was the SEIS EIS fund, that started in 2012. I, I think we made about more, more than 50 investments. And so far, we've only had four failures, which is a very surprisingly small number. I mean, I expect we will. I expect we will have more, you know, give us time, but <laughs> on the whole, it does seem to be going, um, you know, going very well. Yeah. So that naturally leads on to another question about you're assessing very early stage businesses. Now, most times when I speak to technology investors, they're, oh, we want product market fit, we want some signs of market traction. And in a sense, they're letting the market do a little bit of the diligence because saying, okay, they've yes. sold some stuff. So that gives us confidence. You're investing earlier than that. Yes. How do you actually assess whether this is a good business, a good, you know, whether science is sound, all that sort of stuff? Yes. Well, I don't want to say we don't do any due diligence, but we, 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 we mainly do due diligence by doing. So, you know, a typical investment for us is to carry out an, is to carry out an experiment. You know, so £50,000 is enough to do an experiment which will demonstrate that something works. And it's, it's, it's sort of cheaper to just actually do it than to try to, you know, do due diligence by, you know, bookwork or whatever. Because usually if, if, there's, if there's some interesting idea the biggest threat to that is somebody else in another lab in Tokyo or San Francisco, you know, doing the same thing. And and you, you couldn't discover that. Mm-hmm. So when you say experiment, is this kind of like a science experiment, a lab where someone's producing yes. something? Or is this 
out testing a market? Yeah, no, well, both. I mean, I'd probably have to have an example. Uh, maybe I'll pick one. Uh, <laughs> Cytocom, for example, is a, is a good example. So there, there was a scientist, in fact, in Warwick University in this case, and he had developed a technology which would enable you to detect live bacteria in a matter of minutes. So he, he, he shocks the bacteria with a, with a particular um, waveform, which makes their membranes permeable, and then they absorb a dye and they fluoresce. So you look at it under a microscope and, and you give the bacteria their shock, and then they all uh, light up. And so you can count the number of live bacteria in seconds. And at the moment, it takes two days because you have to culture the bacteria. So it's a much quicker means of detecting bacteria. So that was his idea. And so we invested, I can't remember what it was, 50,000 or something, to enable him to build a machine uh, to put this technology into practice and make an instrument which could be sold. And so that seemed to us like a, like a good idea. And there was IP, you know, he had patent on the idea. So we just we just said, okay, that's you know, let's go. And the idea was, so you're still looking at the machine for this, or is the idea you you could build a machine and then take this machine and and find I don't know, it's a hospitals who look for this. I, I don't yes. know who the customer would be. I mean, the, the answer is this: this business is is not yet uh, successful. Sold, we've sold one machine so far. There's a disposable that goes with it. So each time you have to do a uh, you do a sample. You have to have a special pad which has the electrodes in it, which give the shock. And also, you have to. And uh, so, the the business model is is that you sell a machine, and you won't make very much profit on the machine, but you will make a profit as the machine gets mm-hmm. used. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like printers. <laughs> Same model yes, as printers. Exactly. It is exactly like that. Exactly like that. And uh, as I say, that business is not yet successful. And, you know, it could still fail. The, the jury is still out. But the technology is now working. It took much longer to get the, the actual machine. It sounded simple, but actually there were, when we were you know, designing it and making it, there were all sorts of complications along the way. It is now working and is being used. Yeah, and I think that's a common thing that people worry about by investing at this stage in that it would be very easy to find a, something where it's like okay i think it needs 50,000 but then actually you 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 a year later actually it needs another 50,000 and a year later yes. oh it needs another 50,000 yes. and every you can spend 5 years oh it just needs that little bit more indeed that is absolutely true and our fund we we have a strategy where we inv- if you invest in our fund uh, we invest your money over 3 years so when we invest, um, let's say, £100,000 as an SEIS investment in a startup company, we have in the bank twice as much money as that. So we'll have £200,000 available to invest in that company. And so what we will do is at the, at the, we have at the end of the first year or whenever, uh, if the company needs more money, and if it's sensible, if it's if it's on track with its business plan reasonably well, and there aren't any major snags, then we have the money in the bank to be able to invest another hundred thousand pounds. And very often, when we do that, other people invest as well. And then we can do the same again in year three. And that's a really important part of our investment philosophy. I've known other people who make the initial investment and then they don't have the capacity to follow it up. And that nearly always results in a bad outcome for the initial shareholders. Yes, a good example of that is a company called uh, Lightpoint in which we were the first external investor. So we, we invested £75,000 in Lightpoint right at the start. And then a year later, we put in another £75,000. More than a million pounds came in from others to that company. And, you know, if we hadn't been investing, you know, it might have worried other investors. 
you know, they'd say, how come you're a shareholder? You know, you know, why aren't you investing more in this company? And, you know, if we said, oh, well, we haven't got any money, they'd say, well, you know, but the fact that we were investing and at a higher share price because the company was making good progress sent an encouraging signal so other investors came in. So that's we invest over three years, which is unusual. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I sometimes worry a little bit. I, I see people who create EIS follow on funds. And they're saying, "Oh, yeah, we're only investing half of our SEIS," and I'm like, "Well, it's you know, there, there, there seems to be a slight gap there. It seems a potential problem." But you mentioned earlier about the challenges of dealing with scientists who have no business experience. How do you deal with that? Is it a case you're looking for a scientist who you can train as a businessman? Are you looking for them to bring in business people to work with them? How do you sort of look for them to build a business? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the, the answer is that it's, um, it just depends. We, have, we only have one rule in our business, mm-hmm. which is not to have any rules. <laughs> we take each case on its merits. And there's one example I could give you where there was a company called BioAnalab in which we invested. And that was founded by an Oxford professor called Jeff Hale. And to begin with, we had a a manager who ran it, and Jeff kept his job in the university. And then one time after about two years, we said, well, now we think we need to, you know, hire a full-time managing director. So we sat down with Jeff and we said, now, this is what we, we need somebody who can understand the science, who's good with people, who can, you know, do good marketing, who can, you know, all these things. And, and Jeff said, I can do, I can, I'm going to apply for this job, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so he became the managing director of this company and he was brilliant. And the company grew to 50 people and then it was sold for many millions and he became a millionaire and everybody did well. And, you know, it was the, he, he was the, you know, normally people say, oh, you know, scientists can't run businesses. Well, it's just not true. You know, some scientists can do it very well and some can't. And, and very much it, it depends on what the, what the people want to do themselves. You know, if if the scientists, I always say, you know, the great joy of working for a small business, starting a small business, is that when you employ your first employee, you can employ somebody to do the bits of your job that you don't like doing yourself. You know, when you start a business, you have to do everything. You have to do the accounts, you have to make sales, you have to do you know, everything. If some people love doing sales, for example, they love going out to conferences and, you know, picking up the phone and trying to sell something, other people hate it. Mm-hmm. I'm in the hate category. <laughs> yeah, are you? Exactly. So in your case, you know, you would hire a salesman and uh, that's perfect. And uh, so that's uh, so that's what we do. Also, they they learn. There's another another company we have called Run 3D. It was the first investment we made. And that was a lovely girl called Jessica Leach. Very, very clever girl. She got a first class degree in engineering from Oxford. And then she did a, a DPhil in the biomechanics of running. So she knows more about you know, how people run and how the whole running action works than anybody else on the planet. And her business, Run3D, is software. So people run on a treadmill and then cameras pick up. Um, you have you wear markers on your legs and the cameras photograph all this at uh, 200 frames a second. And it all goes into a computer program and it works out exactly what your how your how your gate operates anyway so we invest in that um, business right it was the first investment in this new fund and jessica you know knew nothing about business at the time so she used to ring me up you know most days and she'd say oh you know what do i do about this and what shall i do about this and you know i'd say well i'll come and talk to you and so we did it and uh, and and now you know eight years later she's become really good no, she's she's very confident. She's extremely nice. We've now got twenty six clinics, including um, we we it's a rental model, so we rent the software. It's a every month the clinics pay, and it's we we've, we've now got uh, clinics in Holland and clinics in the UK, and there's two in China, and uh, although they're not paying yet, and uh, it's sort of beginning to go global, and you know, and she's she's really 
good now and hardly rings me up at all. I mean, I do talk to her about every month or so. Which is what you hope for an investment where they do, they grow they grow out of you in a sense. Exactly, exactly. That's just the, exactly the case. We get very involved at the start, and then as the businesses get bigger, we get we get less involved because they get then you know they get boards of directors and people who are much better at doing all the individual tasks than we would be ourselves. So that's fine for us. I mean, presumably that's a key factor in your business model because if you've got a, a very small team, which you do, and you yeah. said you've invested 150 companies now, you said 40 of those have, have sort of gone or whatever. If, if three or four of you can't really effectively support 100 companies. No, that's, that is quite true. We, 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 do get, we do get most involved at the start. I mean, we had a, a company called Aracor, for example, in which we were an initial in, investor, and that, uh, you know, that floated on the stock market uh, a couple of months ago, raised £20 million, and we're not involved with that at all. You know, now haven't been involved for many years. It's, it's sort of, you know, got way beyond what we can do. Uh-huh. So I was interested in looking around your website, as I do. I, I stalk people a little bit before things. And you have this within an hour's drive rule, but you now have sort of branches, offices in China and California. Yes. They're not an hour's drive. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're not for investing. The, the purpose of that, those are to help our investees, you know, to sell into those markets. So, you know, if you've got a a technology that works, like Run3D is a good example. Uh, Chen Ji, who's in China, she she read engineering at Oxford. And then she, so she speaks very good English and, uh, you know, also understands science. And then she worked for us in the UK for a bit. And now she's in China. So uh, I have a call with Chen Ji every morning at nine o'clock. And so I just talked to her this morning, for example, and and she has is setting up two run 3D clinics in uh, in Shanghai, and you know that would not have happened obviously if she hadn't been there. Mm-hmm. And is the idea that she creates connections? Is she actually effectively acting as a sales force in a soft sense? She does everything. So so I mean I I, I pay her salary. And and she helps in whatever way she can our investee companies. And as an example, one of our companies is called Syme. And what that does is it detects the lack of surfactant in the lungs of premature babies. And uh, when you're in the womb, you don't need uh, surfactant because you get your oxygen directly. I don't know what surfactant mom. is. <laughs> Well, uh, surfactant is 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 a uh, it, it it goes on the lungs and it keeps the lungs uh, separated so they don't stick together. It's like a lubricant. It's like a lubricant. Yes, it is. And when you're in the womb, you don't need it, but when you're outside the womb, you do need it. And the process of birth, unsurprisingly, in a way that's not fully understood, but it triggers the production of surfactant. One could well imagine. That that's the case, but when you're very premature and if you're born by cesarean, you don't have the process of birth. So quite a lot of these very premature babies don't have surfactant. And when this was discovered in the 1980s, the treatment was to give all neonates um, surfactant. But it's a slightly invasive process. You have to put a tube into the lungs and squirt the surfactant in. And that is, you know, slightly damaging to healthy babies who don't need it. And you know, the Hippocratic Oath is, you know, do no harm. And so that practice became unacceptable. So now what they do is you wait until the, basically till the baby goes blue. And then you can tell that, it, you know, the baby has not got enough surfactant. So then you give it surfactant. But by that time, it's maybe too late and the baby has brain damage because it hasn't been getting oxygen. So it's a really serious problem. And in the old days, these babies would have died. But now they can be kept alive on you know, ventilators and so on. And they, they're known as the million dollar babies because they're so expensive to look after these tiny 
premature babies. What SIME has done, it takes a sample of gastric aspirate, uh, which is a procedure which is done anyway, it's just to clear the the throat of the of the uh, newborn and the airways, and they can then analyze, shine a laser at it, analyze the signal, and they can tell the ratio of two compounds, and that that tells you whether there's surfactant or not. And that had its first use in the world in China, um, because in China more than half babies are now born by cesarean. It's 54 percent. Uh, whereas in the West, it's more like 15%. So they, Chinese, have this problem uh, in spades. So Chen Ji went to see you know, the local hospital in Shanghai and explained what this could do. And, you know, and they were able to, you know, to use Syme. And it had its first use, as I say, in the world in China, which wouldn't have happened if Chen Ji hadn't been there. So that's, that's why it's very simple. And the same thing in, in California. So in California, it's we have um, Bijan. And Bijan was, was one of the first people I invested in. So I invested in Bijan's first business in England in the 1980s. And his business was called Inca. And it did ASIC emulation using FPGAs, if that means anything. So ASICs are application-specific integrated circuits. So they are... Ah, that means something to me. Yeah, which are chips that are made for a particular purpose. And the economics of making an ASIC is it costs you a million dollars to make the first one, and then it costs you two cents for every one after that. Once you set the machining up. Yeah, but you have to do the design and you have to make the masks and do the whole thing. You can't get away without that spending that million dollars. And sometimes ASICs don't work and, you know, and you just spend your million, but it doesn't work for whatever reason. It gets too hot or it doesn't do the calculations fast enough or, and it's very difficult. So what Bijan did was to emulate these FPGAs, a field programmable gate arrays, they're huge chips and you can change the, the way the chips work in software. And so you can, you can emulate and get a good idea of how your ASIC is going to work before you actually commit the million dollars. So that's what he did. Anyway, that business became very successful and it was sold to a company in California and Bijan went to work in California. And then he then he got headhunted to join a company called Synopsys, which had 300 people at the time. And he was their business vice president of business development and sales. And today, Synopsis has 13,000 people and um, is the number one in the world in its field. And then about um, two years ago now, Bijan rang me up suddenly. I hadn't talked to him for 25 years. And he said, oh, Lish, he said, I've, um, you know, I've enjoyed working for Synopsis and you know, building this huge business. But, you know, what I really enjoyed was, you know, working with you in the early days and getting everything going. It was very exciting, getting our first contracts and all that. And uh, so what I'd now like to do is to help you get your businesses, your startup businesses going. So he then came over here and spent a week going talking to some of our investee companies. And now he's gone to California and he helps uh, you know, our investee companies get their first sales in California. And in fact, he's just everybody he talks to. I mean, they just all, he is a wonderful chap. He's very quietly spoken, very clever and very helpful and knows, you know, huge numbers of people. We and the, One of the most recent businesses we've invested in is called Machine Discovery. And that came out of the physics department at, at Oxford uh, University. And it arose like these things should. I had lunch in my old college in Trinity with the professor of physics and one of his students. And, uh, and his student was thinking of starting this business. And so as it began to evolve, I introduced Bijan to help them and they liked Bijan so much that they asked him to become their his the full-time CEO so Bijan is now the full-time <laughs> CEO of uh, machine discovery which is one of our most recent investee companies and which I'm sure gives you lots of extra confidence in it 
Yeah, yeah. Well, he's well, doesn't isn't you know it's only just started, but it's uh, it's doing interesting things. It's 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 doing uh, it's emulating fusion is one of the things it's doing. So and you know fusion is now getting close up. Everybody thinks. Anyway, we hope we we keep our fingers crossed on that one. Yes. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. Oh, okay. So I'll throw these at you and get your thoughts. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why do you make it? We produce this report every month. <laughs> so I think Oxvent. Should, should I talk about Oxvent? Yes. That's the that. penultimate one. So, so Oxvent was a, a rose out of COVID. So when the when COVID first started and everybody was going on ventilators, there was a shortage of ventilators. So the government asked people to make uh, cheaper ventilators. A year and ago, so, it was very high profile in the press. Exactly. So, so Oxvent was set up with, uh, I think it was 6 million. Well, it was, um, which the company was, it was a big company and people and a scientist at Oxford, and they designed a cheaper ventilator, and the government bought um, six million pounds worth of parts, enough to make uh, enough to make a thousand, three thousand ventilators. In fact, the government placed an order for three thousand ventilators. But by the time this was ready to be made, they didn't want the ventilators anymore, so they cancelled <laughs> the contract. But they had paid for all these parts. And so the, the purpose of Oxvent, in which we've invested £79,000, is to build, to assemble these ventilators and uh, sell them. And they've also now designed an even better ventilator. So the Mark II will be, if everything works, will be a, a really much better and much cheaper ventilator. And so that's the purpose of, of that investment. Yes. Yeah, so, so sometimes it's funny how... Things become stagnant because there's an accepted solution, and then when when attention arrives in it, it, you know better things do arise. Yes. So, in the classic VC triumvirate of market, product, and management, we all we know they're all important, but which one do you think is the most important? Uh, the conventional wisdom is the, the sort of the, the management, the management, and the management. I guess. Um, but I think really, I think I would rather have a good product, and and we will. I mean, you do need obviously you've got to you've got to have the market as well. We don't invest in anything unless we think there's a big market. You know, if if everything works. So we need, we always, we we have to have a large upside in all our investments, but we don't mind how big the risk is, uh, as long as the sort of risk reward equation works. So if if we if there's a good a good science with a potentially large market, then that's what we like, and then we can we will find the management, and you know we will do the marketing and and help to make it all work. So that's that's what that would be our take on it. Okay, that, that's a slightly different approach, but you're you're doing a slightly different thing for most people, so that's that's fine. Tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. Oh gosh, I've had. I wonder which ones. Okay, I, I could tell you about my first failure because that was quite interesting. So it was a it was a company called Heat Heaps, and this was in the 1980s. Uh, I went, it was in the in the February, so it was in the winter, and I went to see this pile of wood chippings in a in a wood, and there, there were, it was about a, uh, as big as a double garage. This pile of wood chippings, and it was covered with snow, and into it at one end went a pipe, and out of it at the other end, the, that pipe came, and the pipe wound about throughout this heap and um and when he turned the tap on the inventor uh, the water came out at the far end so hot that you couldn't touch it and uh, and it was called a heat heap and um and what was happening was that the wood was composting and you know all vegetable matter composts and haystacks famously you know compost so fast that they catch fire 
So if your haystack gets damp, your haystack will catch fire. <laughs> and, and wood has the good feature that it composts at a nice gentle pace and will produce all this heat. And so I invested £22,000 in this to try to make this commercial venture. And the economics were very attractive in that it cost you £3,000 to make the first heap. That was £1,500 for the pipes and £1,500 for labour. And the, you could get as many chips as you wanted from the Forestry Commission, from their thinnings. So you, you could go in and and, uh, and just cut up the, the buyers, which they'd already cut, and they were happy to do that and give it to you. And, uh, and then during the course of its life, which was 18 months, the, the heat would produce heat, which would have cost you £5,000 to produce by... Um, you know, if you if you use gas or electricity to produce it, and then at the end of that, it cost you um, fifteen hundred pounds to replace the heap because you could use all the piping again, and uh, and then and then build your new heap with new chippings, and then you were left with compost, all the the, the rotted down wood chips, which at retail prices were worth ten thousand pounds. So the economics seemed to be good. And we needed, in order to break even, we needed to sell two heat heaps a month. And um, we actually sold one heat heap every two months. So uh, to begin with, and we sold them to uh, large houses, so national trust houses, for example, and they would have the heap outside and then the pipe would go straight into the central heating system. And another good feature of the heat heaps is if you turn off the water, the, the temperature rises inside and then the, the bacteria switch off. And so it, it, it only it rises to uh, about 80 degrees or something and then it stays there and there's very little activity at that. Okay, so it so stops decaying. Yeah, it stops decaying, exactly. Right. So then you, you can get the heat out at such time as you want it so you can make it work in in winter and uh, and so we sold some to national houses and the other um, people we sold to were uh, commercial greenhouses where they, they need heat to ripen tomatoes and so on and then they could use the compost themselves but the the trouble with that business was that the founder was a real eco freak you know he was he was only happy when he was in the wood, uh, you know, communing with nature. He, he didn't answer letters and he didn't have a telephone. And he was just very, very difficult to communicate with. Kind of makes it difficult to be a businessman if you'd like that. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. And uh, I spent one day at the end trying to find him. And I was driving around in my car and I went you know, into the forest and then I eventually came across two you know, people with chainsaws. And I said, have you seen, he was called John Newman, the founder. Have you seen John? Oh no, he was here an hour ago. He's gone up to you know, such and such a clearing. <laughs> I almost literally couldn't find him at the end. And so, and, and then he, he eventually, he sold the company's computer. We had a little computer we bought as the early days of computers. And he sold the computer and vanished, really. And uh, <laughs> I lost that investment. But I think it was a, it, it was a very, it was before its time, really. But I mean, it's about as green as you could get. Generating heat, heat and, uh, you know, composting and ending up with compost. So I, I, I would like somebody else to have another go at that business because I think it, there's nothing wrong with it as far as I can see. Yeah. What learnings did you take away from that? I think what, what I fear for myself is that as I get older, I will get more conservative and you know, somebody will come along and off, offer me a, a third of share of Microsoft, you know, for £100,000 and I'll turn it down because it's, I think it's too risky. So I, I try, I don't mind failure. I mean, I, that, you know, I'm, I'm not sorry that I invested in ETEPs. I think it's, a, you know, it was worth a try and it, you know, it failed, but and the, the loss was small and £22,000. It could have been, you know, if it had worked, I think, it, you know, it would have been worth a great deal maybe. So I don't mind. So I, I, I don't mind failures, you know, as long as they fail for sensible reasons. I mean, 
maybe that one wasn't entirely sensible reasons yeah. or reasons that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what do you wish you knew when you started with Oxford Technology that you know now very good question well, one thing we is unusual about us too is that we don't use lawyers. So I've I've made all my investments just on the basis of a letter. And so I made my. In fact, it was quite interesting when I first invested in in Bijan. There was a two-page letter which we both signed. That that's and so the cost was zero, and it, the investment was all in ordinary shares. So it was very very simple. And then uh, later, when his business began to do well, 3i wanted to invest. And when it came to the point, they said, OK, can we see the legal agreement? And I said, there's the legal agreement, gave them this two-page letter. And they said, no, 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 that's just a letter. Where is the legal agreement? And I said, that is the legal agreement. They could not believe it. And they, they, took, they, they sent this letter to their legal department in Birmingham, and they said, you know, three eyes agreements are, you know, two inches thick, huge, great things. And, uh, and, and, they, and the legal department said, yes, absolutely, it's, it's a completely legal, it's very clear. In fact, they said it's got one or two quite good clauses that we might use. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so then three I did it best. And, um, and then later, when it, when it was sold, and we all made money, three I said to me, they said, look, now we see what you're doing. We actually really like it because you can afford to make these investments of fifty thousand pounds, which we can't because you know our legal agreements cost fifty thousand pounds. <laughs> and so, what we would like you to do is you carry on doing what you're doing, and we will we will invest in the things you say. So I, I ran a fund for three I on that basis. But, but but not using lawyers. We don't use lawyers now when we make our investments. We just we just uh, write a two, you know it's a very short agreement, which everybody signs and it's in English, uh, and then we invest the money. So that um, is very quick, and the the entrepreneurs really like it because they can understand it. You know, and having these huge, big, thick legal agreements is quite daunting for people who are just starting in business. And it, they're also adversarial. You know, it, it's sort of full of contingencies. You know, what happens if and in this circumstance, what that happens. So they take a long time and they, they're not helpful, I would say. Yeah, I've spoken to some people who, who've said there's almost like a little challenge because you start off doing this a little bit. Sorry, I'm doing my hands and people can't see it. Um, but yeah, there's a little bit. You start off in an adversarial thing, negotiating terms, and then you've got to turn around. And suddenly, like you're both on the same side, um, I know. and that can be a, a challenge. I think sometimes. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. I had another interesting thing too once where I, um, I invested in a in a in a business that came out of Unilever. In fact, it was the first, because Unilever have this lovely country house where all their scientists um, work. And because this was in the, I guess, the early, in the 1990s, but maybe in the early 2000s, anyway, about 25 years ago. And and because they were scientists, they were, of course, coming up, but they were meant to be thinking about butter fat and hair creams and stuff that Unilever do. But because they were scientists, they, you know, kept thinking about other things as well. And Unilever wasn't doing anything with any of this stuff. So eventually Unilever said to the scientists, okay, well, you can spin out companies now. So one of them, uh, called Paul Davis, came to see me and he'd been thinking about bees um, and in particular honey. And honey is, is a very good, uh, it, it, it cures wounds. It stops infection in wounds. So if ever you get a cut, you put honey on, you're, you're, it's a very, very good thing to do. Anyway, so he, he came to see me. Um, well, Unilever said you can spin out on Monday. On Thursday, he came to see me, and I offered to invest a quarter of a million pounds in him on the Thursday to start this business and wrote him a letter to that effect. And then he went back to see Unilever, and he said to them, I've, I've got the money now. And they said, what, what do you mean you've got the money? You can't possibly. <laughs> it's nine months to raise money. And, and, and he said, no, here's the letter. And they said, oh, my goodness. And so then you, they rang me up, Unilever, and they said, um, okay, well, look, 
okay, we want to have 51% of the business. Is that all right? And I said, that's fine. And they said, and we want to do the shareholders agreement. And I said, okay, well, if you do the shareholders agreement, it'd be expensive and I don't want to pay for it. And they said, oh, we'll pay. So I said, okay, we, we will pay for the shareholders agreement. And I said, and it'll also take six months. Whereas if I do it, it will, you know, we'll start immediately. And um, they said, no, we'll do it. So sure enough, it took six months. And then on the on the day, so this great thick legal agreement was produced. And then the day before it was due to be signed, Unilever rang me up and they said, um, we've just realized if we have 51%, we'd have to consolidate this into our main accounts and we don't want to do that. <laughs> so will it be all right if we go down to 49%? So I said, no, that'll be fine. We can go down to 49%. <laughs> anyway, and then, so then they invested and then it was very good because when we needed more money, Unilever just uh, invested the money as a loan, a sort of interest-free loan. So it was, it was in the end, very helpful. Yes. So it worked out well, <laughs> well in the end, which is nice. Yes, it did all work out well in the end. Good. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing, where should they go? They should go to our website, which is oxfordtechnology.com. And on the website, we have a quarterly report, and that has a page of information on each of our most recent 50 investments, all, all the ones in the SEIS fund. So it's very transparent. Yes, and I can testify it's interesting reading, having had a look at it last week. Yes. Some very I interesting other, companies. The other there. thing would be worth saying is that on the first Thursday of every month now, we have Zoom presentations. So some of our investee companies present, and anybody who's interested in making an EIS investment directly can listen to those uh, presentations and then all the documents you need to actually make an investment are then there. You know, the shareholders agreement and the articles of association and the application for shares and everything. And then you can invest so that, that people like that. Okay. Well, we'll post a link to your website in the show notes as well. So, and all the information for that's on there, I think, isn't it? Yep. Yes, it is. Great. So thank you very much for coming on today. Lucius, that's been absolutely fascinating. Okay, well, thank you. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.